Have you ever wondered what the mental state of one of Rome's most infamous emperors was like? Or how Rome began their conquest of Britain? Well, have we got a story for you. This is the AD History Podcast, weaving a tapestry of world history from 1 AD to HD. Powered by TGNR. Get your good news that's real news at TGNR by visiting tgnreview.com. Now here are your hosts, Paul K. DiCostanzo and Patrick Foote. And brought to you via London and New York City, you are listening to the AD History Podcast. I am Paul K. DiCostanzo and I am joined by my co-host, Patrick Foote. Patrick, we have two very important things off the bat. One for a show that examines history on a decade-by-decade basis. We have a whole new decade ourselves. And in addition to that, we have a special guest for the first time in the third chair. Yes, we do. It's a super, super exciting um, new year, new decade, but same old AD history. We're still plowing through. We're not really concerned with uh, 2020 just yet. That's going to take us some time to get there, that's for sure. But it's very exciting. We'll probably talk about that a bit further down the line. But uh, Paul, would you like to introduce us to our new guest? I most certainly would. It is my pleasure to introduce TGNR's founder and editor-in-chief, better known as our boss, Kristen E. Struberg. And we're bringing her in today, not just because we, we want to, and it's a wonderful way to introduce the third chair in future episodes. But we're also talking about someone today who has a very specific specialization and background that is going to be extremely helpful in examining one of the major figures in this episode. And so for this case, we're talking about somebody who has graduate-level education in neuroscience in addition to working professionally in clinical medical research. Ladies and gentlemen, Kristen E. Struberg. Hello, AD History listeners. My name is Kristen E. Struberg, and I'm happy to join you today in the third chair. And we are very excited to have you here as well, Kristen. It's going to be really awesome. You're going to bring a uh, completely different perspective to what we're talking about today, which we simply wouldn't be able to. Well, I'm happy to give another perspective on today's very, how shall I say, very storied and very controversial figure, at least in our first segment. Paul, do you want to take it from here? Yes, I definitely do. But before that, let's queue up the AD History Podcast ground rule. One, evaluate events in the context they occurred. Two, over the span of recorded history, the way it was recorded, its methodology, and the facts that are important have changed immensely. How we view history today is not necessarily how we viewed it 50 years ago. Three, nothing in history was inevitable. And four, history and the past is like a different country. As we go into today, and the big reason why we have Kristen here, is in the case of 41 AD to 50 AD, this is where our story begins. And it begins with one of the most infamous figures in the last 2,000 years of history. And that figure's name is Gaius Julius Caesar Germanicus, better known as Caligula. But I think it's important to set the scene. It's 41 AD in the Palatine Hills, the very place where the Roman Imperial Palace is located to this day. It is the late morning, and Caligula is coming back from the theater. 
and he is slightly hungover. And as he's coming back from the theater, he decides that he needs to take a bath to freshen up. Where, on his way, he is cornered and brutally beaten to death by his Praetorian Guard, the portion of the military that is so elite that their one job is to protect the Emperor. And indeed, in this case, they have taken it upon themselves to murder him as well. And oddly enough, guys, this one piece of history that I had just mentioned to you is the part that historians, oddly enough, know the best about Caligula. Caligula, despite how infamous he is, is truly a fleeting figure in trying to understand him, given the fallout from this successful assassination. But for Caligula, his story starts many years before. Caligula, of course, was born Gaius Julius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, and he was the son of the famed Germanicus and Agrippina. He was one of nine children and roughly one of the five that managed to live into adulthood. And in his early life, he actually spent most of that time with his mother and father on campaign on the Rhine because Germanicus's first major job and promotion came from Augustus after 13 AD to be commander of all the legions on the German frontier, as it were, or Germania, if you will. And when he is there, his mother Agrippina has the camp tailor outfit him with a small legionnaire's kit. So they have him walking around like a uniformed soldier, albeit one-eighth the size. And that includes the famous battle sandals that le Roman legions are known to wear, known as Caligulae. And so his name is Caligula, better known and translated into English as Boudicans. That's right. When you say Emperor Caligula, you're actually saying Emperor Boudicans. It would absolutely blow him over with embarrassment to know that history now knows him best by that childish and small nickname. I have to say that Bootykins is my favorite translation of Caligula. It can also translate to Bootkins or, you know, small boot. But uh, Bootykins definitely captures the wrath and severity of Caligula's reign, wouldn't you say? It kind of creates such an ominous contrast compared to who this guy actually was, that he would be given such a childish nickname. It's, it's kind of like there was a modern Tamerlane knowing him as Crocs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. And so naturally, this, this young Caligula is surrounded by violence at a young age. But of course, Roman society at that time most celebrated these kind of things. But his upbringing gets stranger from there. Because obviously, as we talked about a couple episodes back, Patrick, his father ends up getting what many believe is murdered. And that there are some very important and high-ranking people that might have made that possible. And so, in growing up after his father is supposedly murdered out in Syria, he lives with his mother again with his two brothers and 
two sisters. And as they start growing older after their father is dead, his mother begins falling out with Tiberius in the Imperial Palace for a number of things. One is Tiberius didn't want her to get remarried because he was afraid that anybody that would marry her would end up being a threat to him, which is not entirely a, a baseless concern given the fact that she is the granddaughter of Augustus, and it, it really goes from there. In a, also, in addition to the fact, you have to imagine that Agrippina had a great deal of animosity for the fact that Tiberius and Livia, which would be Germanicus's grandmother, and in this case would also be Caligula's great-grandmother, doesn't allow for a true official state funeral when Germanicus's ashes come back. And you also have to imagine that Agrippina probably thought Tiberius was in some way involved in all of this. And so between 1980 that, his, that Germanicus was knocked off, he goes from, through a series of events where he's briefly living with his mom, where he then goes on to live for a time with his great-grandmother Livia, and then on to with his grandmother Antonia Minor. And during this time, Tiberius is one by one getting rid of his immediate family. He ends up banishing Agrippina to a remote Italian island where she ultimately dies due to starvation. In addition to that, one of his brothers is also banished in the same manner and dies either that way or by suicide. And one other ends up getting imprisoned and dies there due to trumped-up treason charges. Yet, for some reason, Caligula is not a victim. In fact, at 19 or 20 years old, he is invited to join Tiberius to live with him on Capri, because at this point, and we've alluded to this previously, Patrick, where Tiberius at some point, because he's such an odd character and such a bad politician anyway, he eventually gets sick of Rome altogether, and he decides that, you know, I'm going to rule by proxy from Capri. And depending on who you believe, whether it be Suetonius or Tacitus, he went there not just to escape Rome, but to wholly indulge himself in just about everything you can imagine, to the point that even for an explicit rated podcast, we ain't <laughs> going there. <laughs> you can look it up entirely on your own. We're cool with that outcome. I'm constantly amazed by how little Emperor Tiberius wanted to be emperor. It really does blow the mind, doesn't it, Kristen? It does. He's definitely... Such a, he's a dark and brooding figure. He is really not interested in the glamour of being an autocrat. So it's a testament to the state of the autocracy, even with Tiberius, the second emperor, that even in ruling by proxy, the whole thing didn't come crumbling down. And that's one of the strange parts about all of this. When Caligula is brought there, he lives there for six years. And it's entirely possible, and this is largely how it's viewed, is that he was brought there to be essentially bred for the imperial succession. And that's a mechanism at this point in Rome that they still haven't figured out because at this point, the whole concept of emperor is it still not a thing that doesn't come around to the beginning of the second century, as we've mentioned multiple times before. And so it's kind of this bundle of personal powers that's very difficult to formalize and pass on. 
and it's still rather new. So he spends six years there, and if he is being bred for the imperial role, so be it. But in, in terms of his actual time there, this is where we start getting some interesting insights on the evolving psychological nature and profile of who Caligula was. And that's really where the crux of this segment and our talk about Caligula today is. Because history, in this particular sense, you most certainly have his enemies, more or less, writing the history because they managed to knock him off. They obviously had reason to get rid of him. And then on top of that, they try to systematically remove him from history. And given how infamous he is, was he mad, bad, dangerous to know? Is this an accurate representation that when I was beginning to mold this segment, I began kind of falling back into my political scientist mode, and I started thinking about a gentleman whose name is Dr. Gerald Post, and he's done a great deal of work for the United States in terms of creating psychological profiles for other world leaders, specifically individuals that we don't have that much access to. People like, say, Kim Jong-un. And in this way, Caligula is not terribly dissimilar. Yes, it's 2,000 years ago, but our access to good information on them personally, due to a lack of general accessibility, in some ways, it can very much pose the same challenge, even though they are alive and Caligula is 2,000 years dead. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin generating, based on the various conditions and considerations for building such a modern profile, and see if we can get a better understanding of Caligula the man, how he thought, was indeed there some form of mental illness involved, or has history entirely overblown the subject and figure entirely? From a philosophy of medicine point of view, this is something also called retroactive diagnosis. Loose, it's a term loosely used. And we're going to see if he kind of fits into any category of mental disorder syndrome. And I use the word syndrome specifically because it's really impossible to make any sort of diagnosis. We have no interaction with the patient. And as Paul mentioned, it's over 2,000 years ago. So we can only go off of really secondary sources. There's a dearth of primary sources. I believe there's really only one that they have, at least that the historical record has from Philo, talking about the plight of the Jews of Alexandria. And we can touch base on that a little bit more as we dig deeper. So there's no personal diaries. There's no extensive letter writing for us to analyze. We're going to just look at what we do have and see what we can find. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, we're always looking. Patrick and I, th this, is our, this is our common struggle for you and I, Patrick. It's just mm -hmm. if, if, we can, if we can ever sympathize with Sisyphus in all of this, and that is the, the constant striving to find some sort of contemporaneous firsthand account. 
because that's the gold standard. Obviously, there's no true thing as pure objectivity. Everything is a subjective experience when it comes to memory and analyzing events, but in this case, it's particularly difficult. But the first thing that I think is really most interesting when it comes to Caligula, and this is something that sheds a much greater light on the imperial situation and layout as it exists then and going forward. During his time on Capri with Tiberius, apparently he learned very quickly to always shield the outside world from seeing any sort of emotion regardless of what was happening. And Mary Beard tells this great anecdote that really describes what we're talking about here, where you have this proper imperial princess, and, and she, they're all sitting down to a meal together. Her brother to her right just drops dead in his food. And what does she do? She keeps on eating as if nothing happened. That is the kind of paranoia and self-control and the ability to completely play it almost impossibly close to the vest in that level of the power dynamics that exist in the imperial setting as we understand it. And there, there's an interesting, what I would say probably apocryphal quote from Tiberius when he was referring to Caligula, and it goes roughly something like this. The world will scorn the, you know, the venomous serpent that I'm going to unleash upon it. And to that end, I can't say if he said it or not, but boy, that's certainly what happened from all we can tell. And so he's there for six years, and he's seeing all this debauchery around him, one of which is just really quite incredible, where apparently, I think Suetonius talks about this, Tiberius is having people executed by tossing them off a large cliff into the ocean, and if they don't die on impact, he has a few soldiers down there in rowboats that make sure to beat the person to death once they get there. That's the kind of barbarity here we're talking about. And there's even some legitimate question that at the end of the six-year period, was Caligula the one who ended up m murdering Tiberius? It's a legitimate question at this point, and a very strange one to be sure. And so now he's coming into power. He's in power, and he's only in power for years. And when he's in power, he's infamous for his cruelty. He's infamous for being erratic and mer mercurial. Even though he begins his tenure as princeps slash emperor with goodwill because he's sought rightfully as the son of Germanicus, based on everything, the few things that we know, and how a profile today would largely look at Caligula. This is basically what's going on. First off, in terms of the setting in which he comes to power, and this is really important, is that right now, Rome is still very much a, a wounded political body. That, that, that transformation from the, the, the Senate-ruled republic to empire, where ruling is then a family business, is not an easy nor, nor smooth transition, to be sure. So it is a wounded political body. There's still a lot of jockeying back and forth. And on top of that, it's now become a leader-dominated 
society. And at this point, a lot of Romans are looking at the princeps or later emperor as a check on the Senate's power, which is something of a mis misperception, if I would say so myself, because that's where all the power was in the case of the princeps. And now, as far as what we know of Caligula through Suetonius, through Tacitus, based on his erratic nature, how mercurial and just how vicious he could be, we begin seeing somebody that off the bat doesn't have much in the way of an apparent constraint of conscience, with one exception. And that has to do with his relationship with his sister Drusilla. Now, when you're dealing with Caligula and Drusilla, we all know the classic story about Caligula and Drusilla. Once again, we may be explicitly rated, but I'm still not going to touch that. And so, when, when she dies at some point, this is the one area where Caligula truly is not able to control his emotions, because that's just how much he cared for her, for whatever reason that may be. But outside of that, he doesn't seem to have any, any, any apparent constraint of conscience. Along with this lack of constraint of conscience, we're also seeing a significant lack of empathy, with the exception of Drusilla. As I mentioned earlier, we have this one truly personal interaction, contemporaneous personal interaction from Philo, where he has Philo commenting on the plight of the Jews in Alexandria, and Caligula's going on about the glass in his pleasure palace, as if there's nothing going wrong in Alexandria and the Jews aren't being persecuted. So you're having this significant lack of empathy combined with this lack of conscience and impulse control problems, anybody, as we know of Caligula. So combine this together and you're looking at someone who has a syndrome very similar to a narcissistic personality disorder. Especially when you consider what he was trying to do in terms of self-aggrandizement. Because this is something that's interesting about Caligula, and this violates so many taboos. You and I were talking about this, Kristen, before pre-roll, is the fact that during the short reign, he was trying to make it so that he, Caligula, was to be worshipped as a god in Rome itself. And that is a huge no-no. Now, if you are in Greece, if you are in Palestine, if you are in Egypt, yeah, there's plenty of deifying the emperor that's been going on for some time, and it definitely predates Caligula. But now he's violating the taboo to make it so in Rome. And this is something that sends off a lot of alarm bells to a lot of people simply because it's so out of bounds. Also deifying himself while he's still alive. A huge taboo to Roman societal customs. That's really what helps define any sort of psychological disorder is not that, not so much that it's just irregular behavior. I mean, how regular is a behavior going to be of a complete autocrat, but that it's irregular within the context of that person's culture. So that was one of the things that definitely stood out to me was the fact that he allowed his apotheosis to happen while he was still breathing. This is where things start also getting even more odd. And we begin seeing certain personality traits in amalgam that are found in various other 
world leaders to you know and in, in varying amounts to be sure. <laughs> and another one that has to be undeniable in all of this is his paranoid orientation. Now you can kind of look at this in two ways. You can view it as Caligula just being way over the top, being far too cautious and overly sensitive to the happenings around him. But I think to do that would be doing him a severe discredit because the fact of the matter is somebody in his position, and specifically him, certainly had a heck of a lot to be worried and paranoid about because he got killed by the very people that were meant to protect him. And so when we begin looking further into Caligula, we begin seeing more and more of these very unusual behaviors that undoubtedly led to a very, very unfortunate outcome. But here's the other thing that needs to be looked at that I think is pretty important. You can look at it from a very top-down way. You can look at it in a very personal way. A lot of times as historians or political scientists or people just even in the present, let me ask you a question, Patrick. Mm-hmm. When, when you're looking at world events mm. and you're thinking to yourself, what might happen next with a particular country? How do you usually go about them doing that? How do you think in your own mind that you'll be able to predict what they're going to do next? I normally look into what's happened in situations like that in history. They're not so much what's happened in that country in the past, but a similar situation to what that country is going through that's happened in the past and see how it plays out then. And that kind of shapes my idea of what could happen in the future. I guess that's how I do that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly, you know, Kristen nor myself are any different in that regard. Mm. But usually, usually we apply something that is largely known as a rational actor model, meaning that country A with you know, leader A is faced with said situation. They have finite capabilities. They have specific interest. And based on the scenario, putting ourselves in that position, we believe they will then go on to do X, Y, Z. And unfortunately, in this case, based on the general profile of Caligula, you can't really apply a rational actor model to him. Indeed, for all intents and purposes, based on the little that we know, he is indeed what what many political scientists would probably end up calling an irrational actor, which is a very dangerous thing, especially in a a, a system that clearly is, is still jockeying for some sort of institutional sinews of power that can last under the new arrangement and where so much is on the line. But in, in general, this is all very difficult because there is so little to go on. However, that is very much by design due to his enemies that were trying to make that the case. Do you think his enemies were trying to erase him from history? And if so, like, how do you think they were doing it? I'm going to ask the audience, have you guys ever noticed that... When it comes to busts of, of Romans in particular, that there are far more heads than bodies. Yes, I have noticed that. Yeah, yes, yeah, so you would be the one <laughs> <Yes>. to notice <laughs> that. <laughs> well, there's a reason for that. It's because, and you, can, and you can actually see the marks on them. What Romans would do in that case is they would either just 
remove the head entirely from the torso and then place on the head of the, of the new emperor or or they would just like remove the face and kind of adjust the hairline a little bit and just a few things and then you know slap it onto that and you can actually see the the cracked creaks marks where they have done it it's all over the place it is absolutely wild never knew about that. that's amazing <laughs> Um, another thing the Romans were famous for doing was symbolic removal of previously important people from their public statuary. They would make very obvious chisel marks to remove names and acclamations, as I said, in a symbolic gesture of how much they wanted to remove these people. So there's some questions about, as Paul mentioned, these abundance of busts, if you will, where it looks like potential Caligula busts have been altered to be made into the following emperor of Claudius, which I think, Patrick, you'll have more to say about Claudius in a little bit, won't you? Yes, yes, Claudius is definitely my jam. For, uh, <laughs> yeah. <this episode. laughs> yeah, what he got up to. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> Well, and the other thing that's interesting, we talked about this last time, Patrick, when we were talking about the Cushion Empire and their, their, their very, you know, their very Greek in appearance coinage. In the case of Caligula, he was actually generous to the public. Like he would go out to the forum and just start throwing coins at them. And it was a combination of both. Yeah, we got some pocket change coming home. But it was also a big deal because his figure was on it, both his face and on the back. There's a lot of times there's even one where it's him addressing troops and you, you you get you get the idea and so that way you could spread far and wide his image throughout the empire it's a very nice and interesting form from antiquity a very early globalized propaganda yes i was mm. about to say as uh as mary beard put it a handy way of having quote propaganda in your pocket <laughs> yes yes and so what something else's enemies, you know, something else's enemies would do, of course, with the, you know, get as many of these coins as possible, and just start scratching them out. I mean, they really went a long way to get rid of this guy. That's uh, not to be surprised by just given the way of how he was gone, because this is pretty standard operating procedure, whether you're ruling an empire with a vicious imperial court that's always vying for, for power in a struggle, or you, you simply have a new boss. They usually like to come in and just blame everything on the old person and then erase them entirely from the record. We've been, apparently been doing this for a very, very long time. So I'm sure there's more than a few people out there know who exactly what I'm talking about right now, including both of you guys. I mean, hell. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's such a modern thing, this whole erasing from history. Um, I, I associate it specifically, of course, like with Russia and uh, Trotsky, of course. but um. To hear it go this far back, that's really interesting to hear. <laughs> Be careful mentioning mentioning Trotsky or Stalin around <laughs> me. We could end up end up in a tangent. <laughs> no, no, cut, cut it off there. Cut yeah. it off there. Let's carry on with Caligula. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you you've had enough, Paul. Go home. Um, <laughs> but so you know they they really did go to extreme lengths to try to get rid of this guy, and you know he was pretty bizarre. Now, there's a few. There's one thing in particular that I do want to address in this case when it comes to Caligula, and that is the famous story about wanting to make his favorite horse a 
console. This is something that has been propagated again and again and again. It's hogwash. You know, it's it's very likely, and let's quote Mary Beard again, because she's probably dead on when it comes to this sort of thing, is that it probably came out of a story where you had a group that couldn't perform verbal fellatio on him enough, and that heard him say, oh, you know, basically, all of you are so useless. I, it'd probably be better if I made my horse console, which makes a heck of a lot more sense, but the original story ultimately ends up getting swept into this sort of thing as it goes forward. And so, naturally, it, it, he's a very difficult guy to read because you're only getting the story through his surviving enemies. Even the whole thing, even the whole thing about, you know, getting getting legions ready to invade Britain himself and then telling them at the point right before they're going to embark to sim simply collect seashells is still pretty hard to accept, especially considering there were other reasons that drew away his forces from crossing the channel at that point anyway, but I think you're going to go a little bit more into depth than that going forward here. Um, I was going to say, I might say one of the other crazy Caligula stories is that he tried to start a war of the sea and just sent boats or soldiers to throw spears into the ocean. That sounds like a variation on the same story. Um, yeah, yeah that's, yeah, that's the story I've heard, that he was like, no, I'm going to fight Neptune, and he just sent soldiers out, just with spears, and just threw spears into the ocean and claimed victory. Well, so long as it was victorious. You know, yeah. glad to see, glad to see Rome is, is, is Trump, you know, is trumping his Olympic enemies, <laughs> as it were. So the one question I have about Caligula for both of you guys from a uh, psychological uh, perspective is the simple question of nature or nurture. Do you think Caligula was destined to be this cruel and unkind and erratic? Or do you think it was just the uh, nature, his nurturing, how he was raised? He was, you know. He spent most of his childhood on the battlefield with his parents. And then in uh, Capri with uh, Tiberius, it seems that he went through an awful lot. Do you think who Caligula was could have been avoided if he just grew up in a different situation? I think this is an excellent question. Unfortunately, I wish we had more to work with for an answer. No. But I'm aware it's a very arty-farty question. No, it's a great question. <laughs> it's a great question. One thing that I was thinking about a lot when it came to Caligula and the violence of the battlefield is that, you know, we think about today and we think, oh, my God, that would be so traumatic for a child. And I don't doubt there was there could potentially have been some trauma, but Rome violence was just a way of life. As we love to say, you know, the past is a bit of a foreign country. For them, violence violence was glorified. Violence was part of life. So it was entertainment. It was entertainment. It wasn't just for capital punishment. It was a way of life. It was part of the everyday. It's hard to say to what degree, you know, it could have been traumatizing. I'm more as far as the nurture part goes with what happened on Capri. That sounds like the title of a very very salacious novel. What happened on Capri? Um, what happens on Capri stays on Capri. God, he just stole my thunder with that comment. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, God damn it, Patrick. Seriously, you stole that <laughs> right from my lips. You guys have been working together too long. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
So, but it's what happened on Capri that more intrigues me, particularly the part where he was forced to not show any emotions because while, you know, the expression of emotions, the degree to which we express emotions is also a very, very much culturally influenced, the Romans' perception of the expression of emotion in ours is not as different, but I put that as a matter of degree as our perspective on violence and their perspective on violence. So it's a little easier to extrapolate maybe what that type of suppression of emotion would have happened and maybe how that would have enabled his lack of empathy. I definitely, and this is a personal, completely personal conclusion, if you are raised in the exceptional life of the Roman autocracy, that highest echelon, where it's the most cutthroat, the most backstabbing, I want to say that that nurture is going to outweigh a lot of nature. But that's a personal perspective. Underline that. And with a situation this far back in the past, it can only really sort of relate to personal uh, ideas because we simply don't know. But it was just a question like, that came to mind when I was hearing about Caligula. I just thought, would this guy have ended up who he was if he was raised differently? But it's just interesting to hear a uh, more psychological perspective on it. Well, you know, in this case, there's a few things that do stand out to me that I think are probably pretty important. And the first one is something that defines Caligula in a lot of ways that he has no control over. And that, of course, is the expectation that comes with being the son of Germanicus. I mean, Germanicus, there were countless emperors, there were many a great hero in Roman history, but the Romans called Germanicus their Alexander the Great. That's a pretty hard act to follow. Yeah. And when you consider the fact that Caligula was still quite young when he lost his father, I think is pretty important as well. Because in the case of Roman society, the concept of, of the, the patrofamilia is so important to the very structure of every Roman life, that, that central male figure. Now, this is one of those points in time where we have to remind the audience that, of course, history is a foreign country. Their conception of gender roles and their importance are going to be dramatically different from our own. And mm -hmm. hence, how those who are growing up in that system, minus this or adding that, are going to have a very different experience. And so Caligula not having his father in, in, in a society heavily paternally oriented is a big deal. Undoubtedly, he had some kind of father figures around, but it's not, in his case, in terms of flesh and blood, not having Germanicus there is a big deal. Obviously, Germanicus himself lost his own father at a relatively young age, mm. but it does factor into it just given the very unique nature of Roman society. Do you think Tiberius could have been quite the big father figure to him? That's, you know, that's really one thing where we start getting into the area of speculation and my own personal trouble really getting a grasp on who Tiberius really was. You know, he had his own problems, to be sure, 
But, you know, Patrick, it is an excellent question. And mm-hmm. maybe that was so. It, it, I don't know. It's, a, it's something that I would want to know. And it's one of those things where it could easily get overlooked when those who live closer to that point in time and are making notes for the historical record don't pay that much attention to because they're not the more salacious details. There's a lot of crapola going on in Capri that are going to, you know, very much rank and priority, unfortunately. I think there probably was some kind of mentoring paternal relationship there. It's kind of hard to imagine that there wasn't. No, still no, but nobody still quite understands why Caligula was spared. You know, that that's something that we have to keep in mind here. That is entirely unclear at this point. But what it definitely is clear is that he never really had a point in life where there was any sort of stability. You know, whether it be early on in life with his parents on the Rhine, whether it be going from his great-grandmother to his grandmother and then out to Capri, and then all of a sudden he's at the center of political life. He doesn't really, you know, what he considers to be family is very small and very transient. There's a chance that Drusilla was that one person for him in terms of the Mm -hmm. familial connection that is so common throughout time, having that direct familial connection. So it's very hard to say, but undoubtedly none of this did him any favors. In addition to the fact that going back to the question you had prior just about nature versus nurture, the Roman imperial court, if you have any sort of problematic disposition or or for some reason you're prone to some sort of mental illness, that's not going to do you any good. You know, it, it's, it's certainly not going to be therapeutic. Though uh, the case of Caligula and Tiberius on Capri, and this is a joke that was brilliant that was cracked by uh, Dr. Gerald Post, who does these these incredible political profiles. And it really fits here. And his quote was, the family that slays together stays together, which I think is really <laughs> probably quite fitting in all of this, not to be too too dark or sardonic. And so, you know, for our listeners right now, you may be thinking to yourself, I've just been sitting here for the better part of 40 minutes, and do I know Caligula any better? What history have I taken from this? And the fact of the matter is, because of how much the Roman elite and those who got rid of him tried to erase him from history, based on the fact that the most we know about him actually comes from his assassination, and that ultimately it is not just his his enemies, but the survivors of his that are writing these tales, he is so difficult to access. However, and this is largely the way I go about it, while there's a very strong chance that a great many of, of these more out there stories most certainly were ramped up for dramatic effect. Undoubtedly, they came from a kernel of truth in dealing with somebody who, let's put it this way, he wasn't dealing with a full deck and the cheese fell off his cracker a long time ago. It's part of it's the classic saying history is written by the winners. Um, as you're saying, the people who wrote primarily about Caligula is are the people who murdered him and didn't like him. Perhaps if we had more from the opposite p- perspective, we would have this more rounded idea of who this person was. Precisely. I absolutely agree. This is where I think it's really worth leaving. If you were to leave the audience a very sound psychological interpretation or potential view on Caligula looking back in history, 
What is it that they should take away from that perspective, given how it's still so central to his understanding, though we have so few details from which to proceed? The bottom line is he was a Roman elite raised in exceptional meaning out of the ordinary, and the result that you got was out of the ordinary. And while we can't say anything truly diagnostic, he was definitely he was definitely somebody who had behavior that was not consistent with the cultural norm. It's just so unfortunate that a number of his close successors down the line are going to appear equally unhinged at times. We're looking at you, Nero. Mm. Looking at you. <laughs> yes. Don't call us. We'll call you, Nero. And of course, uh, following Caligula was uh, Claudius, who I'm going to be talking about uh, one of his biggest events, one of the big things he did at the start of his reign as emperor. But we'll be talking about that uh, in a moment. I just want to say a massive, huge thank you once again, uh, Kristen, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Hope to see you around the game where we find another person worth uh, psychoanalyzing, I think. Thank you, Patrick. It's been my pleasure as well. And I can't wait to join you guys again in the future. Well, it was really a pleasure having you here. And we'll most certainly do it again. Everybody, Kristen E. Struberg, founder and editor-in-chief of TGNR. And with that, we'll be back right after a word with Anna Domini. This is the AD History Podcast. Now, Paul, uh, you mentioned uh, at the start of this podcast, we've started a new year. I'm sure everyone knows about that by now. And it's not only a new year we've started. We've started a whole new decade. And this is a podcast that is very interested in decades. And I remember I was on the beach uh, watching uh, the fireworks to celebrate New Year's. It was really, really lovely. But there's just a part in the back of my head, a little thinking, thinking about this podcast, thinking about yourself. I think you're one of the first people I text New Year's to because of the time difference. Yes, you certainly were. And I appreciate that. <laughs> Happy New Year, by the way, you and everybody. <laughs> Happy New Year, of course, all our listeners. Um, and it just got me thinking, that's the 2010s over with. So eventually, somewhere down the line, we're going to be doing a video about the 2010s. I mean, we're a bit out because we do... We'll be doing 2011 to 2020, where or not obviously the decades 2010 to 2019, but that's besides the point. All I was thinking about, and I thought, Paul, we would ask the audience this, how is this decade going to be remembered? You know, when you brought that to my attention at first, it's interesting because obviously I'm a bit older than you are, and I can remember New Year's Eve in the turnover to the millennium. I can remember how big a deal it was. I can very much remember following the chaos of Y2K. And so after that particular New Year's Eve, it was almost like your 21st birthday. You know, there was not much further you had to go. And so when you brought this idea up to me, it astonished me because it totally would have gone over my head had you not mentioned it to me. That's crazy. Like, given how important yeah. decades are to what you and I are doing, I thought it was a fantastic question. And it's one in particular that you as the audience, we want to hear your thoughts. What do you think the 2010s will be remembered for? And obviously, this is based on where you are in the world and your own relevant history and the priorities you have in your life. But we want to find out. And in fact, we want you to let us know. 
And the ways you can do that, of course, you can tweet it at us at ADHistoryPC, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ADHistoryPodcast, instagram.com slash ADHistoryPodcast, or you can send us the good old-fashioned email, ADHistoryPodcast at tgnreview.com. All we ask, obviously on the other ones, there's a bit of a limitation, except, especially Twitter. But especially if you're going to email it to us, try to keep it under 250 words. And Patrick and I discussed it. And we want to pick a few that we think are particularly memorable that we will read out on our next episode. And with that, give it some thought. Send it out to us. But for now, here's to A.D. herself. This is the A.D. History Podcast. Keep up with the show and join the discussion by following AD History on Twitter with the handle at ADHistoryPC and the hashtag ADHistory. Check us out over on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube by searching ADHistory Podcast, as well as, of course, tgnreview.com slash ADHistoryPodcast. Now, back to Paul and Patrick. And thank you kindly, Anna. Now, Patrick, we are getting into a neck of the woods that quite literally is your neck of the woods. And an incredible piece of world history that is about to take place from the northern coast of France, across the Channel, and on to the Kentish coast. Could not have put it better myself, Paul. So yes, this is... um a super important part of history. Um, and fundamentally, how how important is it? You're hearing it right now. This, th- These words, this sound coming out my mouth wouldn't sound like this if it wasn't for what I'm going to talk about right now. And that is, of course, the Roman invasion of Great Britain. And this is a part of Roman history I am deeply interested in myself. Uh, so much so that I think when we recorded the last episode, I said, Paul... I'm doing this. You can find something else to do. I'm talking about the Roman invasion of Great Britain. and I don't think there could be another way about it. <laughs> and obviously, this is because I'm from Great Britain myself. But I'm from a county called West Sussex, which isn't Kent, but it's very close to Kent. It's in the southeast of the country. If you look at a map of Europe, you can see that the southeast of uh, Britain is where the Romans would have come from. It's the most accessible part of the country uh, from Europe. Um, so that's where I'm from. And there are so many Roman features of my county, of my home, all around us, really. And I've just sort of talked about a couple of them. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of them quickly, so how much this means to me, I guess. There's a big Nor Roman villa and there's a Fishbourne Roman palace, which are two amazingly well-kept uh, Roman features. They're both from a little bit after the Romans' initial conque- conquest, but they're in really good condition. And they're really known for their well-made mo- mosaic floors. If you go there, it's just incredible that these are like way over a thousand years old and they're so well-preserved. Um, and trust me, Paul, when you eventually come over here, we're going to go visit them along with the uh, Portsmouth Historic Dockyard that I've talked to you about in the past. Oh, oh, I wouldn't miss either of it. Well, you know... <laughs> big military historian that I am, mm. there's no way that I can overlook the HQ of the vaunted Royal Navy. Mm. It, it, it's all amazing. But 
Anyway, there's more to it. There's also the city of Chichester, which I don't live in myself, but it's very close to uh, where I live. Um, this is a city founded by Romans, and they actually called it Novio Magnus Legionorum. And its Roman walls still stand to this day. It's a, you can do like walks, Roman walks all around the city, even from its name Chichester. That Chester suffix is deeply uh, Latin and Roman. And their current uh, museum, the Novium, it, obviously it features a ton of Roman artifacts, but it's actually built on top of the ancient Roman baths that Chichester would have had. And if you go in there, you can see these Roman baths. Like I said, despite not living in Italy, I live in a deeply Roman part of the world. The remnants of it still exist thousands of years later. No, it, it really is quite incredible just the how Britain ended up becoming influenced by Rome and Roman culture and traditions so deeply that it's still present to this day. No, but please continue. That said, um, so despite how much of my life is sort of surrounded by Roman things, before researching for today's podcast, I didn't really know the ins and outs of how my part of the world came to the hands of the Romans. So that's what I want to talk about today, that initial uh, conquest of Britain. Obviously, Romans had Britain for quite some time. We're really only interested up until 50 AD for today's uh, podcast. So we're going to go back, get to about there. This is the start of all this. And however, I say this was the start. In some way, it really wasn't because Rome previously had interacted with Britain. Uh, a few episodes back, we talked about the geography book and how uh, Britain was mentioned in that. So the Romans did know about my uh, land at that time and they'd even been there this wasn't rome's first time in britain julius caesar himself had invaded the country twice his first invasion was in 55 bc and it didn't really go too well and caesar wrote himself that he had to flee due to bad weather but there's actually sort of more theories that that wasn't the case and that was just caesar writing that himself he's a we know we, we dared not disobey him, but anyway, his second <laughs> his second invasion was 54 BC, the year later, and it was a bit more successful, but it didn't lead to complete conquest. So Caesar, despite he had been there and despite the Romans knew of it, they didn't completely take over it yet. And Britain in this time, I'm sure you can imagine, was very different to what it's like right now it would have been inhabited by the celtics the celts well let me try that again it would have been inhabited by uh celts and various celtic tribes definitely not quite the united kingdom it is today so why did rome want to conquer britain what was there for them why were they so interested in having this land they tried um about 100 years earlier 90 years earlier or so and they failed why why now? Why did they want it now? And that's because Britain had many things Rome wanted, like just resources and everything like that. It was really bountiful at the time. Things like wood and wool and leather and lead, gold, silver, tin, corn. That was all there to be taken for um to the Romans. So that was just amazing to them. But probably the most important thing they wanted was slaves. You could easily, you know, there's a whole island just full of people you can become your slaves and slavery is a weird thing you've really got to distance yourself 
from these humans. Slaves were just seen as a commodity like leather or gold. They were just a thing that could be taken. And to the Romans, Britain was this island full of potential slaves to do many things for. However, the Romans were also unhappy with the Britons at this time and the Celts on the island because in earlier Roman battles against Gaul, Britons helped the Gauls, so they were in their bad books basically. And perhaps the most important reason as to why uh, Rome wanted to conquer Britain was because they had a recently uh, new emperor, Claudius, as we talked about previously. He had just become emperor and he wanted to prove himself. He wanted to show, hey, I'm a good emperor, I can do good things. And his best idea was to conquer Britain to show people just how good an emperor he was and what he could do. So, like I said, this is only going to be the start of their conquest into Britain. But even from when they began in 43 AD up until 50 AD, they got a huge amount of stuff done in just those sort of six, seven years or so. And they would stay around in Britain for around 400 years. So this really is just Mm. the beginning. So let's start with the conquest. And it all began in 43 AD. This is when Claudius ordered four legions to go and conquer Britain. This is when it began. And this is how it began. So by August of that same year, the Romans had successfully captured one of the tribe's capitals, which is Colchester in Essex. Now, I don't know if many people could point to Essex or Colchester on a map of uh, Britain. So I'm going to try, kind of try and guide people. I know they could just Google it themselves. If you imagine where London is in the Thames as a point of reference, if you go east of London, there's kind of like a bulgy bit, and at the top of that is called East Anglia, that's where Norfolk is and whatnot. It's sort of south of that bulge, you'll find Essex and Colchester. And Colchester was of huge importance to uh, the Romans, as we'll find out later on. But that was the first thing they did. They successfully captured Colchester from the Celts. They'll try saying that with a few drinks in, yeah, blah. Um, the next year in 44 AD they had spread even more but not more northern they went uh, west and they captured some hill forts in Dorset Uh, Dorset is southwest so if you look at a a map of Britain you'll notice an island down the south that's the Isle of Wight if you go onto the mainland and go west from there you'll find Dorset Um, and that's where the Romans uh uh, claim more land so they really don't they didn't only go up the uh east coast but they went west as well they really spread out from the get-go it was quite impressive to see and then for a long time they carried on capturing and then in 47 ad the romans forced their celtic allies in east anglia which as i mentioned is that bulgy bit to the east to give up their weapons so that just sort of showed the power they had over Britain and they weren't just killing everyone as we knew about Romans they made other citizens into Roman citizens and here we go these Celtic uh, tribes in East Anglia they were just making Romans as well but they had to give up their weapons and by 48 AD the Romans had conquered all territory between the Humber and Severn estuaries which if you want to understand that on a map, if you look for a place called Hull in the north of England and a place called Bristol in the south of England, which is kind of in the nook between Devon and Wales, it's really easy to sort of see, that's every everything between there was under Roman control. So it's a 
pretty big chunk of land and I imagine more down south was as well. There were only a few parts that were still under Celtic British control and they were Cornwall and Devon, the northwest of England which is now more known as Cumbria and Wales. Those parts remained under uh, Celtic control for now anyway. And that brings us to about 49 AD where the Romans founded a colony for retired soldiers in the aforementioned Colchester. And here's the really fun part. Paul, what's the capital of uh, Great Britain? Well, at present, the capital of Great Britain is London. Of course, of course. And uh, everyone answered that question. That hasn't always been the case, however. I don't even know at this time London was even a thing, or Londinium, as they would eventually Mm, call it. Uh, At this time, Colchester was the capital of uh, the Roman colony of Great Britain. So if you... I've never been to Colchester myself. I can't tell you much about it. But if you stand there, you think this is the city the Romans made their capital. And that's just really impressive to me. I find that fascinating. But that's sort of where I guess we end for now. That was 49 AD. We will, I, I imagine I will continue this story in the next few episodes. But in just six years, from 43 to 49 AD, the Romans had taken over a huge amount of this island and even like set up their own bases and claimed their own capital here. It, I don't think I could do that in six years with all the, with all the military in the world. It just shows when the Romans want something, they took it. And this uh, Roman settlement of Britain had a huge impact. As I said, it's, which is still being heard today and you're hearing it right now. Latin is a huge influence on what would eventually become the English language. So, so many words are of Latin origin. And it, it's just crazy that that all began about 2,000 years ago. But it was more than just language. Um, towns they set up, like the aforementioned Colchester and Chichester and Manchester. I'm sure you can understand uh, what part of language the Romans liked to use a lot. That Chester suffix is very much thanks to the Romans. And you can still see Roman settlements and landmarks today, like Hadrian's Wall uh, is there due to the Romans. Uh, Colchester still has its Roman walls. Chichester still has its Roman walls. It's it's found all over the place in this country. And they even built over 10,000 miles of road across Britain, which connected up so much of the country some of it can still be seen to this day and it's just amazing what the romans did only in this initial time on the island it's really quite fascinating but as i as i mentioned before the romans were in britain until 410 a.d so we will be seeing what these guys get up to in the future for sure we're gonna we're gonna have a little fun with this here right Mm -hmm. now Mm -hmm. something that I think it's important for our listeners to know, especially if they don't have much of a a background in military history, specifically in regards to the various difficulties that exist well into modern history of invading the British Isles from the continent. Let me ask you a question out of your personal experience. Out of all the months of the year, how many of them would you say that the channel itself is particularly accommodating to a sailor, specifically one that is using wind. Not much of the year, I imagine. It's I live, like, the channel, I can see the English channel from my uh, 
balcony. So I live very near to oh, wow. it. Yeah, it, it, it's miserable most of the time. There's few uh, months, I'd say like the summer months when it's at its calmest, but that's only from the beachfront. And, and how eager would you be to take off from Calais, set off to Dover, albeit the shortest point between the British Isles and the continent, in a craft that is only propelled by wind? I wouldn't be too eager to do that. It, 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 despite it being such a small area of sea, it's dangerous. And and the undertaking of that, and the reason I mention it is because there are many reasons why over the years that has been very difficult to pull this off successfully, and obviously the reasons change over time. But given where we are now, the, you know, th there's a very big reason why Julius Caesar was not particularly successful. It's because, especially on his first journey, he had a lot of issues with weather, and that definitely plays into it. So for the audience, I think it's really important to appreciate the practical difficulties that it would take to successfully send four Roman legions across the channel, albeit at its shortest points, and then manage to disembark, organize themselves, and then fight a, a numerous enemy that very much is looking to repel them from a prolonged stay in the British Isles. But the other question I have to this effect that is particularly important, because there is a human aspect of this, what was the impact on those parts of Britain not taken over by the Romans in this particular decade that fall beyond that line of demarcation that you had mentioned? So it's interesting you mentioned that, the part of uh, Britain not invaded by the Romans, at least to begin with. And as I mentioned, they were the sort of south, the most southern point of Britain with uh, Cornwall and Devon, the northwest of Britain, which is now known as Cumbria, and of course Wales. Now, what's interesting about these parts of Britain that weren't invaded by the Romans or weren't conquered at this time is that they are still very much the Celtic part of Great Britain. They're really proud of their Celtic roots and even have like their own languages to this day, like Welsh and Cornish. And the thing with Cornwall is many in Cornwall, maybe outside of Cornwall, genuinely believe it should be independent in the same way Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland and England are. It should be a separate country within the United Kingdom. They've got their own flag, their own language. It, there's an argument to be made there that Cornwall could be another part of the UK, another kingdom in the United Kingdom. And even uh, Cumbria, as I mentioned, it is very much a Celtic kingdom too, but it's just not as talked about for some reason. It doesn't seem to be an as popular Celtic part. If you ask people to say, what are the Celtic parts of the UK? They would say, oh, England, Wales, Corn Cornwall. Uh, but they don't think they would say Cumbria. I don't know why, it's just gone forgotten about. And I even have a video uh, all about it on my channel, just a cheap plug there. But yeah, I think these parts <laughs> I think these parts of uh, Great Britain that weren't invaded by the Romans, they were damn proud of it and they made it known that, hey, we're still Celts, we're still Celtic, you aren't having us. And that is even reflective to this day. Those parts of the country are somewhat proud to not be like 
uh, they're much prouder of who they are than like the English. The English just go, yeah, we're English, but there's a lot of Welsh pride, a lot of Cornish pride. You see a lot of Scottish pride, a lot of Irish pride, and I guess that comes from the fact that they can sort of say you didn't take us. Well, at least they didn't take them here. How time will go, I'm not too sure yet. You know, something that really surprised me when I was looking up the history on the initial Roman conquest of Britain, because, of course, it, they, they expand their reach over time. I was particularly taken by how Claudius, as you mentioned, politically, since he had just succeeded Caligula, uh, very quickly installed, as I recall, by the Praetorian Guard. And when he decides to do this, he's, his top commander is Vespasian, I believe who ends up being an emperor later on. But the thing I find fascinating about this, Patrick, for two reasons, is when the successful invasion culminates, Claudius actually comes to Britain to oversee the final conquest at this stage of the Roman conquest of Britain. And that's incredible for me for two reasons. One is, it's a heck of a trip for someone like him, and a very dangerous one, to be sure. And the second one, and I think this is really worth mentioning, is that when you are a despot, in this case, for all intents and purposes, if you're the princeps or emperor, you effectively are, when you're a despot, it's usually not a good idea to leave your enemies home alone. No. Spoilers, that's somewhat the downfall of the... Um... Romans in Britain in 410 AD, they had to leave Britain because there was battles going on back home, so they had to abandon it. So yeah, you're quite right on that matter. So that's just something that that's just an observation that I had in all of this. The other question I have is, I I obviously asked you about what was it like for those who were not yet conquered by the Romans. What was it like for the people? who were recently that come under their control. We understand the slavery part, but how does do you know how life changed for them under direct Roman administration? Um, I don't know myself personally, but I imagine it would have been a big change. As we know, the Romans somewhat like to implement a lot of their own ideologies, and especially something I did read was uh, religion. So they were actually allowed to keep their own religion as they were both pagans. Romans were... I didn't know this. I read that pagan... that Romans were considered pagan as well because they believed in multiple gods. As did, the, as did the Celts. They were both considered pagans. And the Romans were pretty cool. They were like, yeah, you can have your own gods. Just don't mock our gods. And then down the line, of course, Christianity became a thing. And the... Uh, Celts wanted to follow Christianity and the Romans weren't happy about that. They were like, no, you can't follow that. As we know, eventually the Romans would follow it themselves. But that was a big factor mm -hmm. in it. Their religious uh, beliefs were somewhat opposed. And, you know, a story that I'm looking forward to that would come up in our next episode. I don't know if you're going to follow up on this. Well, I imagine I will do. Okay. Well, you know, we we're also talking about those who did not yet come under control of the Romans, and you're talking specifically, you mentioned the Welsh, and I'm really looking forward to getting into the story of 
the incredible resistance, a resistance so fierce and so comprehensive and so well organized, even the Romans had to tip their cap, that was led by one Boudicca. Mm-hmm. Yes, I was, I'm looking forward to looking into Boudicca. She is a very, like, loves the right word, but she's a very important figure in British history. And she's definitely going to be covered in all this, that's for sure. And ju- just to kind of tease it a little bit, and this is really wonderful, one of the most amazing parts of her story is how she so capably implemented espionage and intelligence gathering in leading her resistance against Roman occupational forces. It's definitely going to be a really interesting time. This is only just beginning. I'm just looking now. Uh, yeah, she's Boudicca. She was born in 30 AD and died in 61 AD. So the next episode is going to be very much around her from my perspective. That's definitely spoilers. That's what I'm going to be covering in uh, the next episode. And it's going to be really fascinating. And something that's really interesting, when I was doing research for this uh, video... A lot of uh, stuff that came up is stuff from schools for like little kids. So it is something, and I had flashbacks of being taught about Boudicca and the Romans in Britain as a little kid. So it's kind of nice just to have those memories come flying back that I did vaguely know about this. It was just nice having a refresher on it. So I'd love to know if um, any other British people watching this video, if they were taught this as, a, as kids as well. The other question I have for you, Patrick, in terms of those the Romans did fight in their uh, initial conquest of Britain, how comprehensive and how fierce was the military resistance to the four legions landing in southern England? Um, I imagine they were pretty fierce. I didn't really see much info on it myself, but they knew what the Romans could do because they'd been invaded before, so I imagine they were prepared. You know, they, they weren't going to go down easily. And the other thing that, that I read going into this that I thought was particularly fascinating, it actually comes from Strabo, of oh, all people. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, our, our old friend, yeah, our old friend Strabo. Well, he talks a little bit about the relationship between non-occupied Britain following Caesar's invasion and when Claudius eventually comes back in 43 AD. And there was some sort of, of trade and, and tribute, as well as various um, customs agreements. And as I recall, Julius Caesar, before he left after his, his second adventure into southern England, he ended up appointing and creating a very specific ally that largely facilitated the relationship between southern Britain and the Roman-dominated continent as well, and that it's something that was always a very tenuous relationship, as I recall. So there does seem to be an ongoing relationship, even in this near century, between the last time the Romans are there and when they're showing up again here for us now. It's very interesting. It's um, a long history between Roman and Brit- Romans and the British. Specifically as a Briton, 
How do you personally feel about the legacy that came from the Roman presence in your home that lasted centuries? Well, there's eight words I have to say to that. What have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, you know, it's kind of funny, though, because you mentioned, you mentioned the, the, the Romans imprint on your home. Mm. And of course, where, where I grew up in southwestern Connecticut, there is still, you know, coming up on, you know, almost 250 years since uh, the United States declared, not the, not the United States, but the colonies declared independence from Great Britain, where you can so, still so clearly see the British influence from when essentially they were the ones here, you know, in a formal capacity calling the shots. And the one thing that sticks out to me in that case is it's one town over from the one I grew up in. And there is a major road. It's something of a side road now, just kind of the nature of having 20th and 21st century urban planning plopped on, you know, 17th and 18th century urban planning, that there's still a very main road called King's Highway. And there are all sorts of little pieces, bits and pieces like that, all over the place that that remind you of when Britain was here formally and when the original 13 states that were the original 13 colonies ultimately fell under British dominion. So it's just this is just a little bit between you and I and just the interesting connection that exists here and, and just how much it, it it influenced my home from your ancestors mm. as well. The reminder that there were people here before you. And I think that's maybe something a lot of people don't realize anymore, especially, I, I don't like getting too political, but a lot of people feel, you yeah, British, we're the British, oh, we do our own thing, we're not like those people who live on the mainland. We're heavily influenced if you go far enough back in history. Like most places in the world, you know, the people, the, the modern British people, myself included, we're, we're the results of German tribes and Norsemen from Denmark and Sweden and Romans from Italy. We are relics of that time as well. It's definitely interesting to see how all of these various influences have be, you know, essentially achieved a confluence in this one place in this one time that have created and if you and if you're not from the British Isles or you don't have some familiarity with it, just how much not only how much a people like, for example, the Romans influenced you, but how truly the United Kingdom is is very much made up of people that, despite the fact that from from a good deal the last few centuries have had largely a, a common national identity but culturally have been are, are so diverse in a way that I think it's very hard to understand if you haven't seen it up close or studied it up close and by no means a, a monolithic single people in, in any way whatsoever and how all of these influences have come to create modern Britain this is the AD history podcast Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of our journey for today. Patrick, where can people find us? 
You can find me personally on Twitter at NameExplainYT, and of course you can find me on my YouTube channel, NameExplain. And for myself, you can find me on my newly minted Twitter account at the handle at History. Also, take a peek at my reader email submitted Q&A column, the World War II Brain Bucket over on TGNR. We have a link down in the description. If you enjoy AD history and you want to support the show, be sure to leave a glowing five-star review. Or if you're on YouTube, like, share, and subscribe. AD history really does depend on listeners like you leaving reviews and ratings to help support it. Now over to Anna to properly send you guys home. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Like all good things, we come to an end for today. Thank you for listening to the AD history podcast. It is listeners such as yourself who make this show possible and truly awesome. Be sure to follow and subscribe for upcoming AD History podcast episodes, available wherever podcasts are found. Also, follow AD History on social media. Follow the show on Twitter at the handle at AD History PC, as well as on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash AD History Podcast and Instagram as AD History Podcast. In addition to liking and subscribing on YouTube by searching AD History Podcast. Do you have a direct comment or question for Paul and Patrick? Drop them an email at adhistorypodcast at tgnreview.com. Also, be sure to visit the show's homepage at tgnreview.com slash adhistorypodcast. On behalf of Paul and Patrick, thank you for listening to the AD History Podcast. We will see you again next time in the ever-growing tapestry of world history.